Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence with primary care doctor and editor-in-chief of BMJ, EBM Juan Franco and me, Helen MacDonald, content integrity editor at BMJ. Juan and I got out and about this month and we met in real life as BMJ joined CEBM Oxford, Wiser Healthcare from Australia and the Dartmouth Institute in the US in putting on the conference Preventing Overdiagnosis 2023. Overdiagnosis is the labelling of a medical condition that would never have caused any symptoms or problems and is reasonably well established in the medical community. So Juan, we're back from the Preventing Overdiagnosis conference and it was so busy at the conference we actually didn't manage to record this podcast from the conference. Did you have a nice time? Yeah, it was lovely. Love to see you in person again and see everyone back at discussing the the topic of overdiagnosis and uh, yeah, lots of things there. So Preventing Overdiagnosis is a conference hosted by a variety of institutions who care about overdiagnosis and one of them is BMJ and we're the media partner for that conference and it's focused on preventing overdiagnosis as a way to wind back the harms of too much medicine and this year it was in Copenhagen and There were so many interesting things that we discussed that Juan and I thought we would make it the topic of this month's podcast and pick out some of the key themes. So Juan, tell me what were some of your favourite sessions? Or begin with one, let's go one at a time. Well, so since we're always a little bit self-involved, I must say that we, <laughs> I love the, the part of communication. I thought that was very innovative for the conference. I haven't seen that before. Uh, for example, this role uh, of social media and journalism and what part it makes in, in, in either being part of a problem, for instance, in this is mongering, and and the false advertising of low value care and but also it could be a solution right so there, there, there might be a possible a way there to find possibilities to inform people of the, their choices and and, and produce yeah basically I, th- I think that was very innovative i haven't seen that before in this angle but you were in this in the communicating about overdiagnosis session what made you um, plan your presentation or what did you think of it yeah so Stephen Willishan and I organized the stream that was on communication of overdiagnosis and I did speak in it and you're right we wanted to come at it from different angles we wanted to see how a message might travel through from a journal into the mainstream media and or onto social media and how those things might interact and relate to each other. So from my perspective, in terms of journals, I'm glad that you understood that there were opportunities because you know that I'm an optimist and that's what I wanted to convey to people. So there were three simple messages that I wanted to get across that are challenges, but also present opportunities. One is that when we put out content in the journal, I think it has to feel real to people Overdiagnosis is such an abstract concept that it's sometimes hard to connect faces, real people that match the evidence that you're seeing. So actually mm-hmm. finding people who have been overdiagnosed by breast cancer screening or medicalization can be tra- quite difficult. And the other way in which I think it can feel quite abstract is that it's difficult to make the connection sometimes between what the overdiagnosis community is talking about and the agendas that exist elsewhere particularly the news agenda and topical issues. So trying to connect what's happening, what's worrying 
politicians or policymakers um, that you're hearing about in the media with the news agenda. So as an example, at the moment, we're hearing a lot about various crises in healthcare in terms of workforce crises, not enough doctors, not enough nurses and healthcare professionals to run things as we want to. Concerns about the climate and the role, therefore, that healthcare might play in emissions or environmental aspects of single-use plastics. And also economically, just the amount of money that there is available to spend on healthcare. And all of those things relate to overdiagnosis. So I think there's an opportunity where things are topical and people are talking about them for the overdiagnosis community to make that connection and show people that overdiagnosis matters to them and the decisions that they're making. So you may mentioned climate. So sustainability yeah. was very much present at the at the conference. As as a matter of fact, the, the conference opened uh, on the topic of uh, sustainability and how we can reduce our carbon footprint, which is part of the of one of the central activities of the BMJ itself, right? With uh, reducing fossil fuels and some of the campaigns. So I thought that one of the aspects that was made me a little bit more hopeful was that a lot of initiatives about concrete actions to reduce the carbon footprint in healthcare, while at the same time providing high-quality care to patients, was presented in, for example, the use of reusable materials, yeah. whereas it's not directly related to the topic of overdiagnosis. I think the thinking on how they got around it and the, the impact analysis and, and the methods they applied to think about reducing the carbon footprint was highly relevant for the conference. Absolutely. And I think that makes it it makes it feel real to people. And it tackles one of the other problems that I think the overdiagnosis community has had, which is that whilst we've been able to characterize quite a lot of problems, it's been much harder to then find solutions. So to be able to make the connections between the issue and then what you can do about it or what society can do about it or what policymakers can do about it, I think is a very is a very good one. The other area that I think has been difficult in terms of making it feel real is finding individual diseases. So different examples of overdiagnosis happening in different clinical spheres of, of medicine so that everyone understands that this is a pervasive problem across everywhere. And one of the sessions that we heard this year contributed well on that theme and it was about obesity and I know that session stood out for you Juan as well so maybe you can summarize for our listeners the key messages that were conveyed in that presentation. Well the session was fascinating and I think one of the key messages has to do with that we are dealing with a reductive definition of what the pro what overweight and obesity is based basically on BMI that we know for a long time that BMI is might not be a very good predictor of health. And not only that, but reducing BMI may not be a good predictor of improving your health. And thirdly, the interventions that we are systematically offering people with obesity and overweight are vastly ineffective 
but yet we are cling, clinging to them and, and, and devoting a lot of resources. But this was also paired with something that is not talked about a lot, that is what, what is the experience of patients with these ineffective interventions. So the, the issues about weight stigma, people being labeled as being obese and being told that they need to lose weight. And since the interventions are ineffective, they also get a lot of frustration from, from it. And, and how weight stigma is all over the place in our society, that was very persuasive. And now we'll hear from Lene Bomholmaya, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Copenhagen. Perhaps one of the things that was very interesting about your presentation is your concept about weight uh, bias and weight stigma. Could you what, tell us briefly what it is? Well, weight bias and weight stigma is essentially linking fatness with badness. Like if you're fat, you're bad. And this starts really early. Three-year-olds already ascribe um, uh, negative characteristics to, to fat people. They don't want to play with fat children. Uh, they want, don't want to be friends with them. They don't want to help them. So, And it's also, you could imagine how difficult it is to be a fat child when other children are like that. And how does this, is that relevant for healthcare? Are, in, are we doctors trained like that? Well, it's relevant for healthcare because this, in this world it's not neutral to work with uh, weight because there's so much value attached to it. It says something about who you are. It says something about if anybody else wants to, to be with you. It's about belonging and it's also about human rights because if you're fat, you are at risk of being discriminated against. So, so for healthcare, it's really important because you can't just work with weight without also working with, with how people feel about themselves and their belonging in the world. But it's also important because weight stigma is, is related to poor health, physical and mental health. So if you work with, and that's because it's stressful. It's so stressful walking around and living in a world that isn't designed for you, where chairs don't fit, where you don't know if someone's going to yell at you when you go grocery shopping, or even your partner can discriminate against you. So nowhere safe if you're fat, potentially, really. And that's really stressful. So it's really through the stress and, and the not wanting to be active and not wanting to be visible in the world, not use your body. That's how stigma affects your physical health. How does this fit into the management of overweight or obesity? How do you reduce bias, but at the same time achieve the treatment goals? Mm. Well, you could start off by having a fat-friendly environment. So do you have all the equipment that you need as a doctor? Do you have chairs that fit? That's uh, going to uh, benefit your client, your patient, because they're going to feel welcome and they're going to want to come and talk to you. It's difficult because uh, to address the weight bias because at the same time we're telling our, our patients to lose weight. Mm. And how does fit in how we think about the management of what we need to do or what are the treatment goals? Yeah, I definitely think if we look into the weight stigma research and take that seriously in relation to health, I think we'd, we definitely need to acknowledge our own biases 
and to talk to our patients about the effect of weight stigma and also talk about internalized stigma, stigmatization because when you live in a world that's like that eventually you internalize yes I am not worthy of other people's love or respect I am stupid and lazy and all of that and of course if you have internalized weight stigma and think you're worthless because of your weight you will want to lose weight and then you go to your doctor and and it's the responsibility of the doctor to say what can we really do to increase your health maybe we can increase your health by not changing your weight so if you're not focusing on weight in so in what are would you be focusing on we're focusing on on uh, i think the first thing is that a doctor saying you we can you we can work on your health with without working on your without you needing to lose weight i think that's a relief for people and that's going to benefit their health they're going to feel much more comfortable but then you can work with physical activity is so important for health and people who have big bodies can f- experience a lot of barriers to be physical active and um And one of those, or some of them, are psychological. Like I don't, I feel self-critical when I start to sweat, or I can't manage to do walk as fast as other people. So talk about all the barriers to physical activity and work on that. But surely, um, for people listening, will think that of the whole spectrum, and they would say, "Well, perhaps uh, something weight neutral." My work with a patient with BMI of twenty-eight or thirty-two or thirty-three years, but when with patients of BMIs over forty-five, perhaps they will have a little bit more tr- trouble thinking that approach. What would you say to those doctors? Well, I think you can work with weight neutral health at any size. Really, that's kind of the definition of health at every size. But the other question is so. So even though you have a really big body, uh, weight loss treatments still don't work. <laughs> How about bariatric surgery? Yeah, but that's a risky business, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing that the other thought that occurred to me while I'm watching that presentation was that is there a tension here in a way between the individual perspective when you're consulting with someone with obesity compared to the population health perspective in the sense that it's very clear that populations are getting heavier and that there are a lot of issues at a population level associated with obesity but that when you try and tackle that with an individual it's much harder Yeah, I think you're right, and and for all jobbing doctors, I think you you all have the feeling that we are putting a lot of pressures in the uh, into our patients when we perhaps for public health issues we need public health solutions, right? And instead of burdening, increasing the burden of care in, in on the individual patient. So I think that on the individual patient, this group of researchers are proposing sort of a different completely different approach in which yeah everyone can achieve their health the better health with with the body that, that they have that perhaps weight is not so important and we heard a little bit more about obesity in the other session which you like Juan which was on social media over the years the overdiagnosis community have discussed a lot of drivers of overdiagnosis 
And I think social media, if some of those classic papers about drivers was done now, would have a stronger role there. And we had Rafi Heiss from Germany, who studies social media, looking particularly at the rise of influencers on social media, who are often talking to their communities about them, their illness or their condition sometimes, or sometimes doctors or other healthcare I don't know whether they're necessarily professionals, advisors, self-appointed advisors of some kind about about health and particularly looking at how how that, I guess, changes, might change the population of people who identify with a diagnosis. So encouraging self-diagnosis, particularly of mental health conditions, where you might see people suggesting, for example, you know, do you have ADHD? You might do if you feel easily bored or you find it difficult to concentrate on things. And you could list a whole load of traits of behaviour, which I'm sure at least I very much identify with. I'm not sure that I have ADHD, (laughs) but it feels like how you might feel um, when you're being bombarded in a heavy day at work. I don't know how you felt listening to that presentation, Juan. Well, I found it very persuasive because for some reason the Instagram algorithm keeps pushing me these ADHD videos. And I'm good. I'm glad I'm not alone on that because they're heavily targeting me. I don't know if it's due to my, I don't know, flaky activities skipping about with no concentration on what it is. <laughs> I think it might be related. I think I, I think that I the problem is that I often stop and see all the look at you if you are doing this and that, and I the I found them a little bit funny perhaps and and relatable, which I guess the, it is what they're trying to do, right? You're funny, relatable, and that's the thing. They feel real, and I think that's why it's going to be so successful. Where, where, where you have you know abstract epidemiology saying this is overdiagnosed, and then you've got something coming in on your phone saying, "Oh, do you feel a bit like me in this situation?" And of course, you connect exactly. with that much easier. So it's relatable, and but at the same time, I think since I've watched more a lot of these videos, perhaps more than I should, the that it can be it can work both ways because at the same time, some of these influencers that can we can easily criticize, saying, "Oh, they're promoting self diagnosis of ADHD," and perhaps people do not have ADHD. They do offer a lot of coping mechanisms for some of these traits, and and one of the things that we've discussed at the meeting in several sessions is that perhaps we do want to promote self-care and because if people take care of themselves, it is a way of removing the medicalization of our everyday lives. Of course, the problematic thing is that you have to do your self-care through a diagnosis that perhaps you don't need. But I think that a lot of these ADHD accounts promote self-care and and perhaps there's something there. And of course, we can't be the crumpy old people saying, oh, social media is running our minds, you know? So I certainly don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting concept, isn't it? And the concept of widening the definitions of a disease over time or changing them in some way, which often tends to widen them, is very central to overdiagnosis. And we talked about just now the propensity if we move into self-diagnosis where people are at home 
it is more likely that we will pick up people with perhaps milder disease than perhaps people who have very severe disease or very severe symptoms who might go and seek help from a doctor about it. And we talked social media is doing a bit of that. The other folks who have quite a bit of control over this, of course, are the guideline makers who who often, when they're producing um, guidance for a particular symptom or for a particular disease, obviously have the opportunity in their guideline to define the population and types of people who they want to read this. And you picked up on a few comments there, Juan, didn't you? Well, yes, I'm especially because I'm very interested in the link of diagnosis and guidelines because guidelines is what doctors use in their everyday life. And if they if the concepts related to overdiagnosis and low value care are not embedded into the guidelines, it's very difficult for it to have a true impact. And there were at least two things that I want to highlight that I saw from the conference. One is something that we've been promoting at the BMJ in this concept that, that was published as an analysis piece about the time to treat. And there, I think there's also a podcast with the lead author deeper in, in the Deep Breathing uh, podcast from BMJ, Mine Hansen, that where she describes how perhaps we, the recommendations are taking a lot of time from physicians and perhaps they need the time that these recommendations take to be implemented in, in, in our working hours needs to be considered when we're saying we want to f- add a new recommendation. Of course, this also relates to low-value care, because if we have a low-value care recommendation that is taking a lot of our time, then we cannot focus on what truly matters to our patients. And that was heavily discussed in the context of overdiagnosis, where there's a lot of low-value care going around. But the other thing that it was also discussed is how overdiagnosis can be framed in the formal development of recommendations. For instance, if you're introducing a new screening, how do we systematically think about how many people are being overdiagnosed and overtreated and how would that affect the healthcare system and how would it affect our time, how would it affect our patients and and currently whereas there are frameworks that they consider issues around costs, benefits, and harms, perhaps it's not so explicit, the mention of overdiagnosis. And that's, oh, there's an op- a huge opportunity there to intervene, to bring it to the agenda. So you're talking about the opportunity cost, in a way, of, yeah, doing, exactly. of, of doing things, in, in a word, i.e. what you're not going to be doing as a doctor or as a human being going about your day-to-day life because you've been diagnosed with this thing or you need to go and get this next treatment or you have to do some kind of management and operation or take a medication on a regular basis, go for checkups, all this kind of thing. Exactly. So if you're, for example, lowering the threshold for the new disease definition, sometimes the the way that the harms are thought or the opportunity costs as you frame it as well, how many times the new patients are going to need monitoring how would they affect how will this affect their lives on the burden of the treatment and that is usually more preventive than therapeutic and and yes and how that is does this affect the system that where people are waiting to receive care if we go back to the mental health issue if we 
in, increase the, the diagnosis of mental health, we're already dealing with a broken mental health system worldwide. We have a shortage, shortage of, of opportunities for people to receive mental health care. So if we increase uh, the widen the CIS definition, then we're already uh, creating a huge problem for people who, who are urgently need mental health services. Now, Juan, I think you are guilty of falling into the trap that happens at the overdiagnosis conference every year, which is <laughs> people start to feel very frustrated with the problem and they get very impassioned about the problem. And I'm glad, glad we've got you impassioned so early in the morning when we're recording this. Um, <laughs> but an area that we've tried to focus more upon is on solutions mm. um, and probably one of the most high profile solutions or high profile groups working on solutions have been the Choosing Wisely campaign, which originated uh, in Canada, predominantly aimed at healthcare professionals and patients. Um, quite individual in the sense that it was to promote better conversations about tests, which might be unnecessary uh, treatments that might be unnecessary, procedures that might be unnecessary, and to help people make the right choice for them to pick high quality care. And one of the most concrete things to come out of that were these five questions which were first um, published in the US about 10 years ago now, um, with the input of various medical societies. And the questions are very simple, here they are. Do I really need this test, treatment or procedure? What are the risks? Are there simpler, safer options? What happens if I don't do anything? And what are the costs? Costs being quite broad here, they could be financial, emotional, cost of your time, all of those things that we've just been talking about. And this, these themes always come up at the conference, Juan, and you've also just published a series looking at choosing wisely. Tell us a bit about that. Well, yes, yeah, so as a backstory of the series, it also has to do with the 10 years of choosing wisely and the meeting they had last year in Lisbon. And uh, talking to the people there, we thought that it would be very interesting to see what they've learned and what, are, what is their the current thinking after all these years of experience working as a grassroots organization of physicians that developing these recommendations on 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 what not to do, which was their initial approach. So those, there is a series of three articles that we can link perhaps in our episode. But I would say that some of the key messages have to do with what is the best approach to reduce low value care and perhaps thinking about effective ways to de-implement. And this requires a lot of work. It requires talking to people at different levels, thinking about theories of change, behavioral determinants of, for, of keeping low-value care and in heavily resourced interventions that are highlighted in, in, in the articles about of, of reducing low-value care opportunities and challenges. That's one point. So it's doing more the implementation more professionally and targeting concrete interventions. The second one has to do with how this can be embedded into education. And we are a big fans of EBM, right? And we think that teaching EBM might lead to a reduction in low value care, but that might not be necessarily the case 
studies unless we make it more explicit in their curriculum. And that's the article on high-value care education. And that um, would be broad, right, Juan? So that would be to a lot of different healthcare professionals, not absolutely, just doctors. Absolutely. Which leads to the point of the third article that has to do with where is choosing wisely right now. And and one of the things that Choosing Wednesday might need to do is perhaps reach out to other healthcare professionals because it was initially targeted to doctors and not only other healthcare professionals, but have a wider global reach. Right now, one of the strongest campaigns is in Canada, but there are other initiatives all around the world and perhaps strengthening that network and, and creating more inclusion of different settings and contexts is a huge opportunity for choosing wisely. So yeah, one note on the... So these articles are already online, so you can visit them and we'll link them in our profile. But one of the things that... And going back to preventive overdiagnosis, we also heard about some of these aspects in preventive overdiagnosis. There was a session on developing a curriculum, including concepts of overdiagnosis. So I interview one of the speakers, Natalie Edmondson, academic lead in clinical education and research in Western Sydney University. Why should we teach medical students about overdiagnosis? I think it's a reality that the future of healthcare involves overdiagnosis occurring. So I think it's important to prepare our students for the future. And is it difficult? I think it's very challenging. We have to realise that medical students have to learn to diagnose as a primary aspect of their learning. So it's very difficult to challenge them with an idea that what they are doing might be too much. And what you do in university, how does it mix with what happens in practice when they go out? So I think we can certainly teach the concepts of overdiagnosis to medical students, but when they enter clinical practice, they're faced with health professionals and a system that might not be conducive to accepting their ideas about overdiagnosis. Um, so I think it's important that we um, upskill clinical supervisors and clinicians to articulate their diagnostic processes so that they're more sensitive to overdiagnosis as well. And will, will there be tools in the future for that? Do you think so? I certainly think we can develop tools for medical students' learning. I think there, there is utility in some tools, but I think it's a sensitivity that's more important than a specific tool. Like culture, organisational culture, or how it does embed in, in diagnostic thinking? Yeah, I think organisational culture, professional culture too. And I think, you know, changes in power structures within the medical professional may make it more easy as well. And can patients help medical students understand about overdiagnosis? Uh, I certainly think patients could help medical students understand about overdiagnosis. And I think it's a challenge. Medical students, we're asking medical students to teach their doctors about overdiagnosis, then asking our patients to teach the medical students so they can teach our doctors. I think we're putting the responsibility maybe on the wrong person in the system here. Maybe the people at the top should take more responsibility. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for your time. Juan, let's talk more about the session um, on self-testing, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Elizabeth Mahays, a news reporter, was there from BMJ, and we'll put a link to the story that she wrote from the session. Um, the session was delivered by Patty Shee, Research Fellow at the Australian Centre for Health Engagement, Evidence and Values, and by Annette Pludeman, Senior Researcher at the University of Oxford's Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine.
Patty's team talked at the conference about how they'd reviewed around 500 direct-to-consumer test products sold in Australia and looked at the claims about them and their evidence base and services offered to consumers like follow-up counselling. So that's certainly a lot of tests. And Annette described her more personal experiences of being offered such tests, which led her to look at some of the tests which are available on supermarket shelves in the UK. And again, she found very many. Examples of the tests included fecal occult blood testing, tests for male fertility, vitamin D, ferritin, thyroid function, menopause, uh, and, and some quite clinical ones like flu and HIV. And really, I guess the main message I took from the talk was that they were calling the presenters for better evidence around these things when they've been to look. That was quite hard to understand better regulation, discussion and communication, really integration with healthcare providers so that they can help individuals who may have taken on those tests. I don't know, Juan, how would you feel consulting with someone who's taken one of these diagnostic tests and then is coming to you for advice about the answer? It's kind of, to me, it feels all back to front because you'd have a conversation and then you might order some tests. So having the tests and then going backwards to the conversation, I think is, is quite difficult because there's very different expectations that have been set already. That's actually a great question. I guess it depends on the setting. In some settings in which practice is loosely regulated and patients jump from one doctor to the other, you might find yourself in the situation in which you receive a patient that has a test, the results of a test that were ordered by another doctor, and you might find yourself trying to figure out how the chief complaint of the patient matches the tests and the test results. Of course, that is different if the test was ordered due following a rationale. So the components of the problem are, I would say, one has to do with the precision. The second has to do with what we call pretest probability. But and to defend some of this point of care testing, I would say that some of them might be actually very useful when you are dealing with a problem of underdiagnosis. For instance, self-testing for HIV, uh, which is covered with stigma, uh, perhaps doing a test at home would facilitate a, a diagnosis. And um, and, and underdiagnosis of HIV is a, is a huge problem. So I would say that yes, on the one hand, it is a problem, uh, especially for some of these conditions, vitamin D and thyroid disorders, where it's probably little value. But you, we also need to underscore the need to solve the problem of underdiagnosis. That's it for this overdiagnosis-focused episode of Talk Evidence. We'll be back next month with your regular updates on what's happening in the world of EBM. If there are any topics you'd like us to delve into, then let us know. Fan and I are on social media, and you can get in touch via the journal website. So for now, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Take care out there.